what usually happens is the athletes will sit or stand on one side of the room and the corporate <laughs> folks will sit, yeah. <laughs> right? I mean, and the corporate folks want to meet the athletes and the athletes don't really know how to engage with, so it's like the awkward eighth grade dance. Yeah, yeah. I can see it. Oh my God, I can see it. Hey, Alex. Hey, welcome to the latest episode of Dare to be Human with this week's guest, John Register. The great yes, John Register. He was awesome to talk to. Among many things, John is a Paralympic silver medalist. He's also a Gulf War vet. He's a TEDx speaker a couple times over. He has a company called Inspired Communications International. He has a podcast called Life's New Normal. He's an inspirational speaker, a trainer, and coach helping others to hurdle adversity, as he says. Oh. Uh, which you will get that pun as, as you explore the uh, episode. And you will also understand how it is that John can be doing all those things at once because he is a very motivated, get-to-it type person. He truly is an inspiration. And we'll talk a little bit about how, how that's a fraught word. It's a little dicey sometimes to use that word in the context of athletes with disabilities, but he's truly inspiring, not because he happens to be a Paralympic athlete, but just as a human in general. I met John when I was doing work with our colleagues' performance of a lifetime for the U.S. Olympic Committee doing media training with their Paralympic athletes, and uh, we've stayed in touch over the years. He would just call me up out of the blue and say, hey, I need an idea for an activity, and I'd give him some little tiny seed of something. And then he'd come back to me and report, oh, I had this amazing success. Thank you so much. And what he would report to me, as you'll hear in the podcast, was this amazing, crazy intervention that was so beyond any idea of an activity that I'd give him. It was so much more about his personality and his inspirational drive and thought and understanding of the athletes that he was talking to and his own personal experience and right serendipitously ran into him on a train once and it, it was one of the greatest conversations i've ever had it was terrific wow so let us know after you listen to the episode what you think and other questions you might have what you want to talk about us about other ideas for episodes that you have you can reach out to us via phone at 518-212-7886 or leave us an email message at hello at dare to be human podcast.com follow us on our facebook page we're sharing stuff and keeping the conversation going on there as well in this episode you can look forward to a conversation about inspiration porn and what exactly that means an intervention with a bobsled team, and literal elevator pitches. All of those things. We will also link to some of the activities we talk about, props to the great Civ Asylum Tiagarajan, Tiagi, for giving us the inspiration of those activities that we've then passed on to John. More about that later. Hang on tight, it's quite a ride. See you on the other side. Welcome, John Register, to Dare to Be Human. How are you doing? I'm doing awesome. Thank you so much for having me on. I really, I really do appreciate the opportunity. It's so wonderful to have you on the show. So, John, what does Dare to Be Human sort of elicit for you, and what story have you been inspired to share with us today? Thanks for the question. I'm, I'm, yeah. I've been working on this thing called 
echoes. Echoes are amazing. So what does that mean in my life and, and why does this fit into Dare to Be Human? You know, ripples go out from us. So we, we have life and we have what happens in life and sometimes our life impacts another person and the ripple effects are really poignant. But echoes come back to us and echoes do a couple things. One, like when you're thinking about an echo in a valley and you're in the Alps and the mountains and you yodel, the echo comes back to you from all over the place, right? So you don't even know where it's, it's bouncing off from, but e echoes come back. The second thing with echoes is like an echolocation for uh, sonar. It, it, it helps those animals that use echolocation to find out where they are in life, right? Where they are in space and time. And we also can see that for those who are low vision or totally blind, they also use echolocation to tell them what path they're on. So they know by their shoes in a hallway how large the hallway is because they hear it coming back and they can tell if there is are objects in the way because of the different sounds that come back to them. And so what are we listening to in life? So how I got this concept around echoes was I was a little chippy one day into my space. I had my headsets on. I was with one of my friends who's an amputee, a double leg amputee, and I'm amputee myself. And we're going to a youth camp, but I had a space of about 15 minutes where I could just be on the Washington Dulles train going to the gate and just zone out. My headphones are on and I'm not paying attention to anybody. And my friend Carrie is striking up a conversation with this gate agent for particular airlines. And she is talking to her about her artificial legs and how she knows about the Paralympic Games. And so she wants, she began sharing the story about this guy who lost his leg in a hurdling accident. And she saw him on television and she's, you know, she was <laughs> right. So in short, she's saying my story and, and I'm right, right there. And so Carrie then says, Hey, she taps me and says, Don, she's talking about your story. And I'm still in mode, chippy mode, right? I'm not really paying attention when I should be. So it's not my best shining moment. And so I kind of, you know, a little sarcastic with her. You probably don't even know what Paralympic Games are. So she goes, no, I know what Paralympic Games are. She, she ran it all the way down. She says, okay, good for you. And we go up, we get off the train, we go upstairs, and I take a picture with her. And, we, you know, it's kind of grip and grin. Fun. I gave her my phone number. So well, if you want to get in contact, you know, I have, have further conversations. Love, love to chat with you. But really, I was not in the mode of, I was being polite, but I was really trying to, uh, I was not in my best shining moment. I go away. Two years later, I'm walking across the street in downtown Colorado Springs. I'm going to get a hot dog from one of the veteran vendors, our, our military veteran vendors who sell hot dogs. So I'm, I'm just going on lunch break and I'm, I walk across the street. My phone rings and I don't recognize the number and I usually don't answer, but someone told me to just answer the phone call. So I answer the telephone and it's the, it's that lady. So she, she calls me back and she says, um, Hey, I didn't even know this was going to be your number. I lost your card after you gave it to me. I don't know if you even remember me. And I said, well, I sort of vaguely remember the story. And she said, I just had to tell you, you know, on that day, you gave me your card and I lost it when I got home. And today, when I was cleaning up, I was moving locations, your card fell out of a book. And I said, I know this is not your number, but I decided to give it a call anyway. And I said, oh, wow. I said, okay. So she said, a year before I met you, I was in the hospital and I was in the hospital in a room with another woman and both of us were uh, diagnosed with breast cancer. And I was really struggling with the treatments and the kind of contemplated what I wanted to do. And your story came on. It's a miracle. 
then it came on like three times that night. Then like the next day or two, a newspaper article came out in the Washington Post on how you had um, kind of overcome the adversity and, and she kind of are living life again, so to speak. And she said, I decided if this guy could lose his leg and he's a world-class hurdler and get back and, and win this silver medal and all this stuff, I could undergo a double mastectomy. I would have my life back. The other woman unfortunately chose not to, to do that. And she unfortunately passed away because of complications. So she says, your story, without even knowing you and just watching what you went through and how you responded to this, what could have been a tragic life circumstance, actually saved my life. So now that echo had me on the park bench, bawling my eyes out, remembering the time that I was just so chippy and kind of not engaged and dis disengaged and disingenuous. And I was like, oh, many, you know, it just almost flooded me. How many times did I miss opportunities like this? Because I was into myself and this echo was coming in for a course correction to say, yeah, John, you were in, in the space, but it really wasn't you. It was, it was an extension of what you did previous. It wasn't in your best shining moment. This woman's still calling you on this. And I think we have these echoes in our lives all the time and we don't even pay attention to them. Wow. So that's my dare to be human story. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. Wow. Tell me more about chippy mode. I love that, that, that yeah. phrase. What does that, what does that mean to so you when I you say had, chippy mode? I had a, a beautiful soul. She passed away just before she turned 50 and we were just mm -hmm. so connected. Her name was Alyssa Rosen and we grew up in the Chicago land area, Oak Park, Illinois. And we just had this relationship, you know, it wasn't, um, it was just a friendship relationship, but we knew Every time and we could call, you know, the BS card on, on each, each other, no matter when, what part of life we we're in, we we're just that connected. So she, Chippy to me, she had this word and you've heard it's not a, her word, but it was, it was snarkiness, right? Yeah, it yeah. was kind of, uh, that's the chippiness. It was this, it, it, I guess the other way to explain it is tolerance, right? We think that tolerance is a, is a word that's social endearing or social acceptance, but really tolerance is hierarchical. Because mm, if you yeah. think about it, if, I, if I'm in a space where I'm tolerating you, I probably don't want to be there in the first place. So that was kind of our snarkiness, chippiness, tolerance. And I, I have a little whole spiel now around tolerance. Is tolerance the final state for social acceptance and social inclusion? So if I say today, you know, today I'm going to tolerate you. That really, <laughs> that really, yeah, right? <laughs> yeah. That really bring us closer together. We think it means value and appreciation, but it really doesn't. And um, so I'm going to tolerate this group of people. Well, mm. why? Because you're because you're you're thinking you're better than them, and that better than mentality puts us in these the small little box of uh, I see people as objects and not people as people. Yeah, could, could you even recall why you were in that mode that day with your your friend? Like, what put you in that space? Yeah, I don't know if I can. I I, I would yeah. if I had could assume. You know, and uh, that's a dangerous spot to be in. But I, I, yeah. I believe when I when I go into those spaces, it's because I'm looking for my own, my own just window of time where I can collect my thoughts. I can. I'm, I'm probably deep. I'm, I'm thinking about something else. Uh, I know when I go into those moments, I try to hide myself away from other individuals and not be in public spaces because I'm thinking pretty pretty hard on something else. And at this point in time, I was going to chat with a group of amputees, young kids. And so I'm probably thinking what I'm going to say, how I'm going to present 
and um, and how I'm going to show up in that moment and how I can still be open to them, which is kind of funny, right? So I'm trying to learn how to be open to them, but yet I'm shutting this other individual down. What I imagine, John, is that so much of your life professionally is about giving in exactly the way that you're talking about wanting to give, right? I mean, that you're mm-hmm. spending all of your energy sharing your story and sharing yourself, right? It's not just what you do personally, it's what you do professionally. I would imagine right. it's hard to always be on and present for others in that way. Yeah, especially when I'm in like um, an improv mode or my, mm-hmm. I'm in creativity mode. Usually those times happen like in the shower or I'm driving the car or, <laughs> yeah. you know, yeah. or I'm doing one of the other other things you do in the morning time. Right. So let's keep a pad, pad of paper with you. And the, the, the thoughts are just coming to me. And usually when I'm shutting people out, it's when I'm in creative space and I don't want that to stop. I want just to continue to just to flow and, oh, that, that would link to this thing and that would link over here. And if somebody says, oh, you got a telephone call, I'm like, ah, I just lost it. Right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. I don't think anybody would begrudge you a moment of mm-hmm. wanting your own space or some privacy walking through the airport or, you know, wanting some downtime. And isn't it lovely that she was able to reciprocate sharing a inspiring story with you? Yes, absolutely. And I and, and and because of that, you know, we talk about these when I was talking about the course correction, the course correction of an echo. What it's done for me is helped me to be more present in those opportunities where I find myself shutting down or, or going into myself. So I should not do that in public settings. Right. Because I want to be open to the opportunities that are ah. there and not in that space. So let me find the spaces where I'm going to be alone anyway and see if I can create that atmosphere of, of sparks of creativity and play in, in that space. So if I go to like a ski slope, right, and I go skiing by myself, can in the, on the chairlift or even I want to be present there. But when I'm skiing by myself, do those thoughts come to me um, or if I'm in the car by myself? Can I create those those opportunities there and not when it's around when I need to be open to other individuals? How have you discovered ways to maintain that presence, right? Because I'm sure there's still that voice in there, right? That's whatever is bringing you out of that space, you know, that phone call that, you know, that that person that you run into in the while you're traveling, what, what yeah. do you find keeps you keeps you present and keeps you from sort of retreating and getting into that chippy mode? Yeah. So here's here's the thing. I think it has to do, really do a, a lot around mindset. Yeah, uh, I've been I've been thinking a lot about mindset a lot lately too. I think my whole story is around mindset, mind shifts, and and that is recognizing when you're going there. So if I am sitting on an airplane and somebody sits down next to me and they begin a conversation, and I really don't want to have the conversation, I realize I'm going to that space, yeah. and I need to be open in this area. So let me put down my reading material. Let me put down my headset. Let me turn my attention and focus in on this individual because I'm, I'm going to get a gift. Something's about to happen. And let me be open to the gift that's about to come. And I think that what happens when I talk to athletes who are transitioning from whatever, from athletics into maybe their next work career. And I, I look at that as a work career to a work career transition. And the same thing with military individuals who are leaving military service and going trans, transitioning to a civilian service or doing something else. A lot of times we don't look at the opportunities that, are, that we have every single day. So if an athlete is invited to a sponsored dinner, what usually happens is the athletes will sit or stand on one side of the room 
and the corporate <laughs> folks want to yeah. <laughs> right? I mean, and the corporate folks want to meet the athletes, and the athletes don't really know how to engage with. So it's like the awkward eighth grade dance. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I could see it. Oh my god, I could see it. <laughs> and everybody's a wallflower. No one else to dance. Everybody, right. everybody wants to dance, but no one wants to make the first move. I don't know if they right. don't like me. And you have all these things that are going on. Um, and so I try to get them to say to be open in those amazing opportunities that they have that no one else is privy to. So if your degree was in marketing or you want to be in the marketing space, maybe there's a marketer right there that you can have a conversation with on what should I be thinking with and how should I position my career as an athlete so I can be so my transition's easier of what I'm trying to do and enforce those connections so that later on the echoes come back in their life organically and they're not trying to force it. Obviously, we talk all the time about daring to be human and the idea of courage and so much of the world that you live in and the folks that you're engaging with have all sorts of, you know, the embodiment of physical daring and courage and the kind of courage it takes to just be in a room with other people and start a conversation or to sit on a plane and engage in small talk with the person sitting next to you can sometimes be even more daunting or terrifying, right? <laughs> It is. So that's the kind of coaching you do a lot of the time is helping people whose life is all about this kind of courage that most of us don't even dream of. And how do you find that kind of courage within yourself? It's, that was so funny. Uh, you helped me a lot in this space. You have no idea uh, when we were doing the, I was so enthralled with you and, and, your, and the work that you do. I haven't even done mop bucket stuff, but just the improvisation. <laughs> so I literally, we were talking on the first sessions that um, a performance of a lifetime perform, very yeah, good friends and colleagues. Of, yeah. Yes, performance of a lifetime. So we're, do, we're doing this session. I'm, I'm just like, oh my gosh, this is, this is, this is great. This is ice cream. And I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm writing furiously and taking notes as I love all this. But one of the things was we we're talking about elevator speeches, right? How to give an elevator pitch and those type of things. And I said, well, what if I just did a real life elevator pitch, right? Um, <laughs> so I went on an elevator and I faced the back and I began to have a conversation with everybody. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> I, said, I said, so everybody, listen up. Uh, my name's John and I'm going to do an elevator talk to you today. Uh, <laughs> Well, they, you know, people were sitting there, some were laughing, some were freaking out. Who is this guy? What's yeah. about to happen? We're in a closed space. And if you remember, like, some of the, the models of behavior when the person gets on the elevator and you face the back, the, the social norms will have everybody else kind of face the back or yeah. turn yeah. one way. Yeah. So, so it was, it was absolutely funny to watch what was happening and to know that in that moment and whatever, how many floors were going up, I was in total control of that situation. Fantastic. And I think oftentimes we do not understand or realize how much, um, not really, I don't know if the control is the right word, but how much we can show up as our authentic self. And if that's what we truly would like to do or desire, it becomes almost comical that we can get an elevator and practice an elevator pitch. And what I would do in a speech, but I, you know, I'm just talking to people and saying, how are you doing today? How's your day going? And, and I mean, I know they were freaking out, but I was like, <laughs> <laughs> So now I can authentically say in my presentation, I just did this like a couple weeks ago. You know, I was in an elevator and some, some speech I was giving and I faced the back again. And I, and I, I do these randomly things just to stay in the, in the moment and stay sharp. 
And because you never know what's going to happen. And our people with the elevator door, is everybody going to run out? Or, you know, um, yeah. you know, you know <laughs> or do some people going to say, hey, I'd like to have more conversation with you about this. <laughs> and it's kind of funny that you can have these moments. So to go back to your kind of point, Kat, when you're on an airplane, that's a moment. You can actually engage in that space. You can come into that person's world and just listen and hear what's on their heart and what's on their mind. And sometimes the, the, the whole plane ride passes and, and you just have this phenomenal interaction. And it's not to sell something, it's, but it's just, it's just a gift that's, that somebody's given to you of, their, of, uh, of what's going on in their world. I think we just, shut it, we just shut it down more than anything else, you know. When you said, you know, what's going to happen next, that's the scariest thing, right? That if I, if I engage with someone and start making that small talk, well, I don't know what's going to happen next. What am I going to know what to say? Or what if I say something wrong? Or what version of myself should I show up as? Or there's all these different fears we can have. And if we just sort of trust that like, okay, I could just show up and I don't know, I'll figure it out. I'll be uncomfortable in this moment and we'll just see what happens. Is, that's just a that's a scary bridge to to cross, right? That takes that takes courage, and I think a little bit of of practice doing that. You know, maybe not as extreme as facing backwards on an elevator <laughs> and speaking to strangers, but you know, baby steps. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I wouldn't. You know, if you're not comfortable doing that, don't go out and do that, everybody. Uh, <laughs> but there is, you know, can you get to a, a point and be so comfortable, and you can live in that moment of What's next? So you, you made me think about something in the what in the what's next. I was talking with one of our great Olympians, uh, Bob Beeman, long jump, gold medalist, 1968 Olympic Games. His Olympic record still stands right now, 29 feet, two and a half inches. Mike Powell broke, broke his world record at 29, four and a half. But Mr. Beeman told me when I was chatting with him, I said, wow, you know, what was kind of going on in your head and what was on the metal stand and you just broken this record? And he said, well, in the, comp- in the competition, I did it on my first jump in the finals. So my head was, I got to prepare to jump over 30 feet because I know when these guys are going to jump over break this work record. So, right. So in the moment, we don't think about this was the most amazing jump in history and it's never going to be surpassed for over you know 25 years. That's not what we're thinking. Yeah. What he's thinking about is in the moment, somebody else is going to surpass my performance. So I got to be ready to jump farther. The, the wow. second thing, right. The second thing. <laughs> and I was like, I was totally blown away. Yeah. Because that's exactly right. That's an aha moment for me. So and then the second thing was on the metal stand, he was thinking about as, a, as the actor's getting ready to play, he's like, man, what's next? Yeah. And it, but it wasn't from the standpoint of what's next as in, I don't know what to do next. Right. right. It was from the standpoint of, I, okay, I've, I've surpassed my greatest goal I could have imagined. Where does my life turn next? How do I take these opportunities and, and put them in, in, a, in a capacity in such a way that I can focus on building out my life and my, my career uh, beyond athletics? Because he was doing other stuff besides athletics. It, that was just, you know, one of the things that he, he chose to do. He had his degree program. So he's, he's looking at the, okay, where's, where's the next opportunities for me in my, in my life? And right. so it wasn't like, what's next in the next event that's coming up or uh, what do I do now? I was like, no, what, what, let me think about this. Let me ponder what's going on in my life. I don't know if we, if we choose to have that type of, of, a, of a transition statement for ourselves. There's something really so 
lovely about that, right? It made me feel so happy for him that that was his thought because it's so hopeful to say, oh, I have this wonderful moment of triumph. And instead of now it's a letdown or that was the peak moment, even if it is the thing that's going to be the headline for him, it's just now I get to have the next adventure. What's the next achievement? And it makes me wonder about, especially for great athletes or, or folks who achieve great things like you have, how do you measure success? Right? Is it just I have a moment where I have a medal put around my neck? And if so, what about the things that don't have medals attached to them or the things mm-hmm. where what if I'm going to pursue something where I know I'm not going to be a medal winner? Does that mean I'm never going to be successful at it? That's great. So I was gifted very early on in my life. I never knew how gifted I was as far as not athletic performance. I mean, I had talent there, but the, the greatest gift I, I got early on was a gentleman by, I still remember his name. His name is, is Mr. Ken Handy. And I had just broken his 23, 25-year-old long jump record at the Oak Park River Forest High School. And when he heard about it, he wrote me a letter, beautiful letter. And the most poignant line was he said, you know, congratulations, amazing performance, outstanding young man. I wish you all the success and, and, and best adventures in your life. Just remember at all times that records are always meant to be broken. Mm. Oh. And I did not quite get it then, but I realized that it can't be about the actual performance. Even though you're the, you might have the best performance that day, it's the ER ending on every word, which is the Olympic model of Citius Altius Fortius, swifter, higher, stronger, that yes, you're the best today, but you can be even greater tomorrow. You jump the farthest today, you can jump farther tomorrow. And that ER is really, I think, the superl- should be the superlative of the word, right? The superlative should not be swiftest, highest, strongest with the EST on the end. Yeah, I think the superlative actually should be the ER because that means there is always a, a better performance that's going to happen. So therefore, the medals in our lives, Kat, are just the markers of what we have done on a particular day and a particular point in time. It's past performance after the performance is over. So if you're only looking at your medals, you're only measuring by past performance. You're not looking to where the capabilities are. We started to talk about sort of setting mindsets and and mind shifts. So with a lot of athletes, you know, you're training toward a goal, right? Like you have an event that you're competing in or events that you're competing in, you're training for those events. I have to imagine that deciding to or, 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 or having to leave that life behind must be very jarring. Is it sort of mind shifting of, of taking that same skills that you had in terms of setting goals and things like that and, and just sort of redirecting them? Or is it, is it something larger than that? For me, it's larger than yeah. just tr- the transfer of skills. I think that's a, a behavior that we can teach ourselves. The mindset really comes in the journey all the way along. So, for example, where I was going with the echoes is that one of the most important qu- questions a business owner uh, is going to ask themselves is, how do I dispose of my business? Because that then says you're going to be successful all the way through. And the, the mindset then becomes different on how you approach opportunities. Because if you have your number and you know what you're going to get out on, then once you hit it, you're done, right? <laughs> you can, you can right. Everything else is just, just gravy. So yeah. um, 
So now everything I do is going to be different than I'm not, I'm not chasing speaking opportunities. I'm just trying to achieve the, the, the overall number that I want. So that's different than an athlete saying, okay, now I've, I've made my best performance today. Now what? Or the scarier part of I made my best performance. I'm not talented enough anymore. I'm too old to go to the next Olympic Games. What's next for me? And now we have that same question for Mr. Beeman that he asked himself. Is in a, a state from coming from a state of fear, right? Because I have not shifted my mindset early enough to know what's coming up next. So the question I ask uh, athletes when I when I talk to colleges and universities is, athletes are really afraid of asking that question too early because they think they're giving up on their their career. Jinxing yourself, kind of right? You're, yeah, right. You're jinxing yourself. Instead of making it aligned with your career, that this is totally a part of your exit strategy, right? Uh, because you're going to get out of this game in one of three ways. You're going to get hurt. Uh, you're not going to be talented enough. There's always going to be another freshman class coming in. And someone's going to be right. more talented than you. And or you're going to win all the medals in life. You're going to win the Super Bowl, the soccer. <laughs> you know, and then, then you still have a transition because you're going to age out of it. So yeah. my question always is to, to kind of get them to disarm them is to say, okay, what's your day look like from eight o'clock to, to six o'clock today? What's right out your entire day for me. And they, they're pretty easy to do that. You know, just take your typical day, just average and have to be perfect. Just, um, and then I ask them, okay, put that paper to the side. Now I want you to think you had the most amazing career, the most successful career in your entire in the lifespan of, in your sport. Your discipline. And now I want you to write down, you've just retired. What is your eight o'clock day from eight to six look like now? And yeah. And so that becomes. <laughs> so now we, we can role play it and those type of things. So I don't want to really freak them out, but I do want to freak them out. And I'm not trying to freak them out to state of, you need to be doing this, this, and trying to put these behaviors together. I want them to understand. That so, so, so some people, some kids will be like myself, be really snarky or with it, right? And they'll, they'll say, "I'm going to Disney World." Absolutely, right. <laughs> right. So, that'll take a week. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, right? Yeah. yeah, of course. Oh, you're going to travel the world? Yeah, for sure. Do that. You got all this money now, right? So after you finished all that and you you're living in the dream house, what's your eight o'clock in the morning look like? And it's six o'clock. No, write it out. You've done everything. Every you've 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 made your millions of dollars, and now you are sitting there, across from your family. If you have a family, you got the dog, and never. What are you right. doing from eight to six? Yeah. And that begins to then we can begin to have a conversation on if you don't know what that looks like, can you forecast what that looks like? Well, then, what, what do you want it to look like? And then, can we start building today what that transition looks like for whenever you decide to step out of your sport and that's not me telling them that you need to do this that's the discovery so yeah i, I, I need to have an exit strategy and you and should that, have an exit strategy yeah. from the other thing too right so <laughs> right <Yeah. laughs> well you know and i know that you are hired all the time to be a speaker for and to folks who are you know not elite athletes uh, yes because i imagine this mindset shift is applicable to all of us yeah, for for sure. There is no, there's nothing new under the sun. Nothing I am saying or doing is anything 
you know, rocket science stuff, right? Um, where we're, we're, we have to do the algorithms to put a person on the moon or something like that. This is it's not that type of work. But this mindset shift that I'm talking about really is focused on the individual. I w- I've been saying this stuff, you know, for the past, I don't know, 15 years at least in my story. And somebody else saw me speaking that actually put another leg to it. So I only have one leg. That's a, that's a bit of a boot moment. Um, so, so he gave me another leg to stand on. Um, and after he heard me speak, and I, let me unpack it a little bit. I had an injury, which resulted in amputation of my left leg. And then I came back and won a silver medal in the, in the Paralympic game. So one of the, the aha moments I had was when I was sitting in a gate waiting area and this, this woman came up to me with her two boys and she says, you know, it looks like you've overcome so much adversity. You're such an inspiration. Would you please tell my boys what happened? So in that space, you know, I was like, did I really overcome adversity? Mm-hmm. And I began thinking about this probably for the next six months. And my story, I tell it, it's a very, it's very small, you know, very window time. But yeah. um, it, it probably took me six months to a, a year to really understand what she was saying. And the aha moment came for me before I was doing my TED talk was because I was about to get out of the game. I didn't think I had anything to say. When people were trying to say, oh, you overcame so much adversity, what they were attributing that was to me overcoming the loss of my left leg. Right. And I said, if I overcame the loss of my left leg, I'd have my leg back. <laughs> and then, right. And then so yeah. that's, the, all the, that's the reaction I got. And I said, <laughs> OK, so, so I'm on to something. Uh, so then I said, well, what was it that I truly overcame? And as I began to unpack it, it was I overcame my personal negative stigma when I was thinking about myself in terms of my fears. Alice, my wife, was going to leave me. That's what I thought. Yeah. I thought my son, John Jr., five and a half years old, was not going to, no, he was no longer going to see me as his dad. He's going to treat me differently. I thought I was going to lose my job in the United States Army. I was no longer going to officer candidate school. My Olympic dreams were now over. Mm-hmm. I, I thought my friends were going to treat me different. Those were my initial fears. So I had to overcome that. The second thing was I had to overcome the negative stigma of other individuals. Other people who were believing for me what I could or could not do based upon what they believed they could or could not do if they were the amputee. How many times do we often do that all the time? We forecast onto other people what their capabilities are based upon what we believe we could do in their situation. And then third was societal stigma. Why or what had I listened to? What had I allowed in my brain to make me think and believe that my wife was going to leave or John Jr. wouldn't see me as his dad anymore? And I had all those fears. What was causing me to believe the fear? Was it when I saw a, a Disney movie and I see Captain Hook mm-hmm. and Peter Pan and Captain Hook's an amputee? Right. So Captain Hook's the villain. Yeah, yeah that's the, 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 the scary villain who was bit, his arm was bit off by TikTok, the crocodile. Yeah. So that turned, him, that turned him bitter because of his accident that he had. So now I'm an amputee, so therefore do I see myself as dark and now I'm the, I'm the monster? And it began, to, it began to elevate itself even more so when I looked and visited those soldiers at Brook Army Medical Center in the, at the burn center, premium burn center. Soldiers burned over 90% of their bodies disfigured Faces melted. Do they see themselves now as Freddy Krueger in a nightmare on Elm Street? Right, yeah. And is that how we perceive them? Yeah. So how many times do we listen to things that that begin to frame our way that we view ourselves and other people that are around us? 
this goes everywhere. That's why when I talk to organizations, I lead them with disability. But really, what have I been listening to in my life that tells me that this person of color, this person who's maybe gay or lesbian, this person who is blind, this person uh, who is putting whatever widget you want to. And I have colored them in such a way based upon my experiences of what has been told to me societal. In corporations and organizations, the leadership, what kind of culture are you putting in? What environment are you setting in your organization that's making the people believe what they believe? That's driving the behaviors of the results that you are trying to get to. That's the mindset shift that we have to have. It begins with with each one of us. Arbinger, that's who, who, who was there, um, he, came, he came up to me and said, hey, I got something for you. So he was really talking about this whole mindset stuff and that we turn when we turn inward to ourselves is when we are when we betray our original thought to do the right thing. There's so much in the the media, right, in terms of like a character can be sort of marked with a with a disability sort of as a sign of their evil sort of, right? That there that there's this physical manifestation almost of their cruelty or their evil or or whatever it is. Right. Um, and then it the feels other, like there's yeah, the other yeah. side too. Right. So there's the other side too. There's the superhuman side. Right. Yeah. I was just gonna right. say this woman came up and assumed you must be you must be a superhuman. You're there's that sort of that other assumption, right? Like I'm like you're saying that she's making this assumption. You must have overcome all this adversity. You must be someone right. superhuman for and you know, she was she was right, I, I think, but, <laughs> but, um, but, but she, that was, uh, she made that assumption and there was a connection there that you are, you know, you are a, an, an athlete and you had to overcome all these barriers, but at the same time, that was what she was defining you as, right? There was all these other things that were lost in that focus that make up who you are that are, that are lost because she's just focusing on this one aspect of, of your being. Uh, a person might be saying, Oh, you're he's he or she's carrying the weight of their entire people. Right. <laughs> right? <Yeah>. Magical <laughs> Negro, for example, Absolutely. in movies, right? Right. Right. And and so so they he's defied all the odds and or she has done you know, so they're the savior of the, the entire race. Mm-hmm. That they align with who I think that we as my people are. So you're not like those other individuals. You have transcended. It's so insidious, isn't it? Right. I remember when <laughs> uh, when Performance of the Lifetime was doing the media training at the U.S. Olympic Committee for you all, which is where we met, um, one of the themes as we were helping the athletes work on their stories, their personal stories, was that person after person kept talking about how irritating it was to them that everyone called them inspiring, which, which I think was was hard for those of us who were first meeting you all at first, right? Because we thought, well, but you're really inspiring. <laughs> Not just because, you know, you've overcome adversity, whatever that means, right? Some of some of you all, you know, were soldiers and, you know, some of you had been in devastating accidents and had come back to be elite athletes, you know, whatever. But just because you were inspiring to us, you had stories. Or, but, or born. <laughs> right, yeah. Or born, you know, <laughs> or we're just fascinating people who had achieved a lot and were telling us stories. But after a while, what I came to realize was it was a way of not seeing you, right? It was a sort of generic, like, 
I've made up a story that because you are injured and aren't broken and seeing yourself as a victim, I see you as inspiring. And it was in fact a way of not seeing as opposed to seeing somehow. Does that resonate? Yes, that it does. And so I've had to grow in that space as well because the stories are inspiring, as you said, right? So there's a difference and that I'm going to, and I'm going to, I'll use a word here that we say in the disability community. So this is, you can all, you know, try to use this one. We call it disability porn mm. or, yeah. or, or inspirational porn. Yeah. So you see that you see a little puppy dog on the commercial uh, from the SPE or something, and they have the puppy dog eyes and, the, and they're crying, you know, so let's get your money. Right. Uh-huh. So that's kind of the, that inspirational that, that, that tugs on the heartstrings. Yeah. So I'll, I'll make a donation. And, you know, in the first part of Book of No Pity by Joseph Shapiro, it talks about a young girl who's really excited to be a, a, a poster child. She's getting her picture taken to be on this amazing poster thing, this big national campaign. She takes the picture. She has polio. And so in class, the first day of third grade class, I think it's third, second, third grade, the, the poster comes out and it says, get your children vaccinated because we want you to look like this person, blonde hair, blue eyed little girl, oh. not this person, oh. it's her. Oh, right? God. Right. Right. And so we call this that we call it inspirational porn. So we're, we're, we're using that, that term in such a, a kind of a negative way to, to shock people to yeah. say we don't want to do that. Right. We want to see yeah. people. So I, I call it now the what, the wow, and now. So what is, what am I looking at? What's going on? So it's like you coming into that room for the first time saying, what's going on here? This is amazing. And then you get this wow factor. Oh my gosh, these people have overcome so much. We tell ourselves a story around that. Uh, we see the Paralympic Games, amazing athletes. Oh my gosh, it's incredible. And then now that I'm on with that information, now what do I do with it? That's the now piece. These people are living life as they choose to live it. And this is how they're showing up every day. They're not superhuman. They are just living life as they, as they so desire. And that's the piece. Would you write about LeBron James coming down doing a windmill dunk and saying that was the most inspirational thing I've ever seen in my life? <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah, right. We, we, yeah, don't, we don't use that language. Yeah. So what athletes are saying is write about me from a sports perspective of the athletic accomplishments that I've achieved. Yeah. Not because I'm doing these athletic accomplishments because I'm an amputee or I'm blind right. or I'm deaf right or whatever. Right about my achievement. And that and that was the thing. I just set a world record at this distance for my category or whatever. Right. Don't write about, oh, that was most of most of this, but it's so inspirational because of that. Right. And so I, I go around the globe now. I've been in Kazakhstan and Uzbekistan and Tokyo. And so I'm talking to uh, Paralympic sports writers to understand how to write the sports story, not the inspirational story. What language do we use? Yeah. Right. Yeah. So that's the, and I'm talking to athletes to be a part of that journey conversation with them uh, so that they're not looking at themselves from a victim mindset as well. Because a lot of athletes you'll see are being led by individuals who do not have a quote unquote disability. So therefore it becomes this kind of charitable thing for the individual that does not. And I'm doing this great social work. Look at the good I'm doing for humanity. I mean, this kind of awareness feels like we need to be awake about this across all sorts of differences. I mean, it seems like conversations we need to be having a lot, right? Whether it's gender or religion or skin color or age or 
disability, right? These are conversations that it feels like we need to be having because we're yeah, so is, blind to it all over the place, right? Yeah, we're, we're, just, we're so blind. Um, and yeah, we need, I like the words you use, woke. Get woke, woke people, get woke. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, woke, woke up. <laughs> it, it feels like if anything's happened in the last couple of years, it's that at least we're a little more aware of how asleep we are around these things. Does that yeah. feel true to you? <laughs> yeah, for, for sure. I, I, I think it's, you know, we're, we're it, it is what it is. We're pushing into spaces and we, we do need to be more aware and, and not just um, in the social feed of a, of a, you know, 140, I guess, 280 character tweet now. Right. That's right um, yeah. It's, it's, it's more than that. That's a good conversation starter. It should be a tool that we use to have dialogue and discussion, but there also needs to be platforms where we can actually bounce ideas much. I think president Obama said it best on that. Uh, what was it? Uh, my next guest with David Letterman. Yeah. And, he, and, and he said one of the most poignant things on that show that, and he owned up to it, right? He said, you know, what we're doing, we're trying to get everybody's vote together. We, we put the social media out there and we got the best folks from Silicon Valley to help us get $5 for everybody. But what we didn't realize we we're creating was these uh, little pixels following everybody around on their social media now and that being used as a weapon against us. So, for example, if I want a pair of shoes and I've, I've looked on somebody's website for a pair of shoes, all of a sudden that, that pair of shoes shows up in everything I'm online with. Right, <laughs> you know, it's yeah. in my Facebook feed, timeline, all these things. Um, so he says, if we are able to do that with our cell phone buys or, or the, thing, the, or the commercial products that we buy online for our personal lives, what happens with ideas and thoughts? Those things are the same way. So what we might think that we are really um, getting information from both sides and, and being robust in our dialogues and conversation, but we're only getting what we have put out that we want uh, through the behavior, the systems of what we tend to shop for. So yeah. we're, we were, so our bubble is just getting bigger and we think that we're going, we, we have a, a, a really good debate on the inside, but we're only debating the things that we already agree. That's the danger. In terms of, of changing that conversation from, you know, the, the inspiration being the story of these athletes to the actual athletic achievement, how do you kind of make that change happen, make them sort of realize that there's a larger part of this that they're maybe not, they're not seeing and that's what they should be sort of helping to serve you in telling that story? The tactic behind it is no one changes by me saying something. If you see it from your own vantage point that this, oh, if I get this, I'll be better. You know, the next time it's going to be better that you discover that for yourself than me being a talking head. Yeah. So one of the things that I did when I was in Kazakhstan was um, you know, I got I got some pushback on on that. And it's kind of almost in the same space you're saying that, you know, it's, it is inspirational and, and these things. And I put it in the framework of them becoming a country nation of the old Soviet Union. And I said, what was the story that you wrote on, on that? You know, you have your Independence Day that's coming up. And uh, what, what are the stories that you, you're telling yourself or you're telling the people? And I talked about you're shaping the narrative for how you remember or reflecting the factual things that you're saying about this, about this country that's, that's been up for, what, 25 years, I think it was. Yeah. And so during that time, so now I got them disarmed and I'm thinking about sports now. Mm. So I come in and say, now, how are you writing about who, what are the stories, who are the, who are the sports heroes that you're going to be using 
because sports leads with Olympics in, in, in this country. And so what's, what's the, um, what's that angle that you're going to be writing? We're going to talk about this app in this app. And I said, so what's the Paralympic story? What's the, what's, who's, who are the Paralympic athletes you're going to use to tell their story around this? And it might not be the sports story, right? It might be a total different angle that you're looking for to get your audience and your readership to uh, bite on your on your article, your voice that you're trying to put out there. So if you're only saying one thing, you're, you're denying an opportunity of this huge dimension that's out there. If it's only inspiration, because this story that you write here might open up society for curb cutouts in the in the in the in Kazakhstan or it might open up uh, accessible transportation. It might help you get your your mom, your dad, who is living at home right now because this because it's not accessible, and you're writing to free an entire society and create even more revenue for the, the entire country. But you're only thinking one small sliver. And this thing it builds and builds and builds upon the, the stories and the vernacular that that you write. And if you're only thinking about inspiration, one little small inspirational story, you're you're not thinking big enough. And I get them to kind of understand that through. Um, but I call the cop it move now. <laughs> uh, so I was I was talking to the bobsled team. I had to go up there, and, and the executive director Darren Steele says, "Hey John, I got all this stuff that's happening. I got um, no one is focused on Team USA going over, and and it was about the games in Russia that year um, in Sochi, Russia, and so they had new track and field athletes uh, coming on board." The, that they were taking that the women were taking more of the limelight than the guys. The guys had a lot of the limelight and the sponsorships. So that was a rift between that. The track and field athletes are used to making a lot of money. Bob's there is no money. So they had that going on. They had social media posts that were happening of athletes, you know, actually putting their checks up online and saying, Oh my gosh, I can't believe I'm doing this for this little bit amount of money. I mean, it was it was just crazy. It was all over the place. And no one was focused on Winning medals. It was all right. this, this whole science. <laughs> and then on, on top of that, they had they had a they have a selection procedure, which is both based upon performance, but also based a little bit upon subjectivity of who they want in the sled by the drivers having this to say so. So they got all this stuff that's happening, and who's going to be in the sled? And it's microseconds that are happening, and push tests, and friendships, and you know, little buddy networks, and it was just a, a nightmare. And so. Hey John, I know you're uh, you're an inspirational, motivational speaker guy. Can you come in and fix it? You got ninety minutes. That's <laughs> 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 Darren. That's not happening, right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, this is a whole cultural shift that you're yeah. talking about here. So I called uh, a wonderful cat copic, and uh, she <laughs> she said, "Well, why don't you have them role play around being the saboteur of the?" Team USA. Remember? Uh, I so, do. So, it's a, yeah. yeah. So I gave them that. So I, I, I made that. I said, okay, here's here's a scenario. I got them to a point about half an hour into presentation. Here's a scenario. Team USA is going to Sochi, Russia, but there's there's an infiltrator in our, in our ranks right now. Mm-hmm. And that person uh, is devising all the things to derail Team USA. And I said, you know, fast forward. What would some of those things be? that they would do to yeah. infiltrate Team USA and get us off the rail. So we're not even on the podium at all. And so Lauren Williams, one of our gold medals track and field athletes, she goes, can I, can I be described? She was really new. <laughs> and I said, absolutely. <laughs> so, so she gets up there and I got, uh, you know, Steve Holcomb, who's just passed away. And they got Lolo Jones. And I got, I mean, it's like star-studded field in here. Yeah. 
And, and there's no way I'm going to come in and and say anything to this group, right? Uh, so I, I have to get them in a different space. And so they started throwing out some, you know, some kind of some funny stuff. And they said somebody's the first answer I remember was chicken. I said, huh? Chicken. Chicken. Yeah, exactly. I said, what chicken? And so Lauren looks at me and says, Should I put it up there? I said, absolutely put it up there. I have no idea what it means. So we can explain what that means. And said, the chicken is so terrible over there that they would come in and feed us that nasty chicken. Uh, and it would have all this going to the restroom and upset our stomach. Uh, and I said, oh, got it. Okay. So, and then they, somebody, then somebody says, Russian models. I said, what? <laughs> and so it was, a, it was a Russian model dating thing. So just going to get all our, all our guys offline. Right. Yeah. So I was like, okay, right. So we, we put all these things up and then we started getting into the real yeah. uh, nitty gritty stuff. Right. As they kept on going, they started talking about some of their own issues. After that I said, um, to them, this was the confident move, right? Is there anything that you think we might be doing to ourselves right now that's on that board? (laughs) 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 And and then they they actually said it. They circled like seven things they were doing to themselves right now. And I said, oh my gosh, I just, I got them. That's good. <laughs> and I, I said, now I can go in on them. And so for the next, like, probably five minutes, I ate their lunch. <laughs> I said, I just told you, you had an infiltrator, a Russian spy who was coming in to derail Team USA. And I, I, I lit him up. I mean, I just, I, I freaking went hard on him. And I said, you're telling me we're doing seven things to ourselves right now? Right. Yeah. That's going to keep us off the metal podium. Are you kidding me? All these people that are giving us money to support you and your efforts and your and I just I just I just lit them up, right? Uh, and you, I mean, those were like freaking, and, uh, freaking, <laughs> and, and um, I was I was like I was back on that elevator facing the back, right? So, um, and I, I said this was just awesome. So. I, I, I let it sit, and I know I let it sit. You know, the one minute manager, Ken Blanchard, uh, one minute reprimand, I just let it sit for like 45 seconds. Mm. And no one said a word, right? No one dared to say anything. And <laughs> the silence was broken by one of our Russian guys, actually. <laughs> 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 and he says, this is exactly what we're supposed to be talking about. <laughs> and uh, so then I come out of that silence with these words. I want you to listen to what Colonel Hal Moore said before they went to the, the Drang Valley in the first conflict we had in Vietnam, where he took Custer's regiment nomenclature he had a trained, well-trained fighting force replace half of it before he, he left. They were going to be surrounded on the hilltop. But before they left, he told them these words. He says, look around you. In the 7th Cavalry, we got a captain from the Ukraine, another from Puerto Rico. We've got Japanese, Chinese, Blacks, Hispanics, Cherokee Indians, Jews and Gentiles, all Americans. Now here in the States, Some in this unit may experience discrimination because of race or creed. But for you and me now, all that is gone. We're moving into the valley of the shadow of death, where you will watch the back of the men 
and the man next to you as he will watch yours. And you will not care what color he is or by what name he calls God. They say we're leaving home. We're going to what home was always supposed to be. So let us understand the situation. We're going into a battle against a tough and determined enemy. I can't promise you that I will bring you all home alive. But this I swear before you and before Almighty God that we're going to battle. I'll be the first to set foot on the field and I'll be the last to step off and I will leave no one behind. Dead or alive, we will all come home together. Wow. I have two thoughts on that. The first is you're an awesome storyteller. Uh, <laughs> is that, is this, and I, I, I'm, I, I guess in all seriousness, was this, have you always been a great storyteller or is this, uh, is this something that you sort of developed in, in a sort of career that you've, you've forged for yourself? I, I believe the storytelling comes from my family. My, my dad's a really great storyteller, preaching and sermons and things. Oh, and I was wow. coming up with links. My grandfather, my grandfather's amazing storyteller as, as well. Um, lives to be a hundred years old, grew up in Paris, Kentucky, uh, with a lot of inventors. My, uh, uncle, who since has passed away, a great storyteller as well. He was, um, in charge of all the platform speakers on the March on Washington. Um, wow. and, and, uh, yeah, right. <laughs> right. <laughs> so <laughs> I had a little bit to live up to, you know? Yeah. <laughs> oh, you're family. a ringer. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> It's so, quite a, quite a but, set list to manage there. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But I think what, you, what happens is, yes, I, I have had an acumen for understanding how things connect. But mm. I don't see the, the patterns necessarily all together. But you have to work at, at you have to work at the craft. And so that's why talking with individuals like yourselves who are masterful at pulling these things together and, and, and being able to play in a moment that doesn't have to be totally scripted and you can yeah. write the own story as you're in the moment. Yeah. Uh, I've, I've taken that to say when I'm uh, pitching a, a client said, I am not the talking head on the stage. I got some places I want to go. Yes. But I'm really a facilitator of the brilliance that's already in your room. Don't overlook all these people that you're bringing in. They have some great ideas because they're the ones working it. Yeah. Not me. who's coming in for an hour, an hour, 90 minutes. You know, let me, let's, let's bring that out. Uh, and a lot of speakers won't go there, right? They won't, they won't get in the elevator face to back. They'll tell other people to do yeah. it, but they yeah. won't do it themselves. Yeah. Walk in the, walk in the talk. Right. And you I think, walk in it. yeah. And I think that's the other thing that that sort of elicited, you know, that, that speech in that moment, you know, to those athletes in that room, like, look at what we're supposed to be versus what we're delivering to ourselves right now. Right. Like, look at all the yeah. ways that you've just admitted that you are sabotaging yourselves versus the ideals that you're supposed to be sort of living up to. What happened after that moment? Did, did things change? Um, the, the athletes, I mean, all of them, they were just like, that was powerful. Yeah. You're, you're exactly right. And it shifted. And Darren said that it set the tone for the entire rest of the conference that they had there. Mm. The, the attitude was different. And so their mindset has shifted around, okay, I'm responsible for me and I need to support, even though if I don't make the team, I got to support Team USA. Mm. This, 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 I can still be supportive, even though it's a cutthroat industry, I can get behind Team USA. And that's powerful. I think the second thing is it's easy, easier not to display courage in that moment. And you'll, and you'll see it, uh, you'll see it come out 
because people will talk around it about what they would do in a situation rather than demonstrating somebody else going through that. So they, they, they do it from a very personal standpoint of what they believe they would do, but they don't know because they haven't lived it. So we have a lot of people right now that are in our, in our, um, I'm not picking on Congress. I'm just saying that there's, uh, I'm, I'm using an example, not as uh, agree or disagree to anything. What I'm saying is that there are a lot of people in our, in our, in Congress now that do not have that military background. So they really don't know what it means to support somebody in a firefight. No one that I have ever met in war is fighting for their country. Yeah. And that's a harsh statement, right? Mm-hmm. Somebody from the outside say, oh, that's, right. that's sacrilege. You can't say that. Said, so think about it. When you're in a firefight, you're yeah. not thinking about your country. <laughs> yeah. You're, you're thinking about getting out of there as fast as you can and protecting that person that is in there, your buddy with you, yeah. and pulling him or her out to. That's yeah. all your, that's all that's on your mind. Let's get that absolutely clear. Right? But now when you come home, when you think about it, you're thankful for your patriotism, you're thankful for getting over there, and you don't want to be back in the situation. Yeah. Right. So if that's showing up and you take that and to get elected into office, that's your mindset. It does make me wonder about the difference in a society that has a draft and a society that doesn't. And, mm-hmm. you know, we we talk a lot about what it was like in World War Two and how the country, you know, the generation was the greatest generation and the country was unified in a way. And we all know that there were plenty of issues, you know, I'm certainly not talking about going back to the great old days and great for whom and we had all sorts of problems. Um, But there is something about all being in it together and sinking and swimming and all of us paying the price if we're at war in a different kind of way than just, you know, having um, a military where where you can have a Congress where most people haven't been in the military because you can avoid it mm. if you're privileged or choose not to in some kind of way. Yeah, it's 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 a uh, it's it's hard. I mean, but again, that's where the courage comes in to have the have the have, have, have conversations. I had to have one. Um, I was speaking for the um, uh, Air Force. This was right around the time where. The Colin Kaepernick stores, you know, had a lot of traction and yeah. going on. And I'm the only person there, not in a uniform, because I'm out of the military. Yeah. But I was in my suit. And there were all these captains that are there that are going to leave their troops. And so uh, one of the captains gets up and asks me a question. And I know it was one of those snarky moments, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm gonna I'm gonna ask this question to this guy, the black guy on the stage, who's the only one that's that's been in the in the entire six-week course, the only one I was told, black person that actually was in front of them. Right. In a leadership type, right? The only one. Is that crazy? And I'm really? Not even the only one. Wow. So now, so so then, and I didn't know that at the time, but he asked me about, so what do you think about NFL players kneeling? I was kind of ready for, you know, that's, that's a great question, but you have to remember the audience and the mindset that you get right now. Yeah. So he can't ask that question in my mind. He can't ask that question to the two people in uniform behind me because they're supposed to be neutral. Uh-huh. Right? So he can ask it to me. Yeah. Uh-huh. So uh, so he does, and it's great. Glad for the opportunity. He said, you know, you don't have to answer it. You know, we just want to go, oh, I'm going to ask the question. So in those moments, acknowledge what's there in the room. Acknowledge what's going on in the conversation. So you have to be aware, first of all. 
So we got two kind of opposing thoughts and ideas that are happening. We have one side that says it's just it's not patriotic what he's doing and it's a slam to our people in, in the military. And on the other side, it says, no, we're really protesting against police brutality. Mm-hmm. So as I said, what we have to do, let's take it and, you know, and either one, I said, either one of those situations is not where you have, to, where you can live right now. You cannot live in either one of those camps, even though we have, we can build facts around it or whatever the facts you choose to accept. You have to, and that's how it started. You have to lead the conversation because you are, you are going into commands right now. You're going to have service members that are going to be coming to you with, from both sides of this, of this, uh, of this debate. Yeah. So you do not have the luxury to get into a debated uh, situation, be drawn into either side because you have to lead troops. And if you, if you got squadron going on in your, in your squadrons, your people are going to die. Mm-hmm. Right. So that's, that's, that's how we're going to set this premise. So let's talk about what Colin Kaepernick truly did. Okay. What was, what was the first thing that he said? The first reports, he went to a Marine and asked, what is something I could do right. to show this position? Right. right? So right. that's, that's number respectful. one of what he did. Yeah. That's respectful. He said, what should I do? The Marine said, kneel before the black. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> Instead of sitting on the bench. Yeah. Exactly right. He said, sit down, kneel. And, and so because people have done that. And I said, then I said, let's get this, let's don't get it twisted. The reason why he could say that was because he knows that the first people to kneel before the flag and protest were not NFL players. Mm-hmm. <laughs> nope. And, I, and I, everybody's like, what? Well, who was it then? I said, well, let's go back in history. That's why you got to understand all this stuff. Let's go back in history. The first person to kneel, let's go back to the, the, the Revolutionary War, where we're trying to break away from Great Britain. How did they fight? They fought by kneeling down and firing weapons in to their patriots and defense for something that they're truly believing in. Yep. For a cause. So that created this whole uh, framework around the stretching of our democracy, which is symbolized in the stretching of our flag. Yep. So we got, we have in our flag now, we have the original uh, 13 stripes for the 13 colonies, which were those stars that were first on the flag for the 13 colonies, right? Mm-hmm. So we got those, that's going on. But we're not at 13 anymore. We've grown to 50. Yeah. 50 states. So that means there was a stretching of our democracy. We didn't have it all right the first time. So we're, 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 uh, we're allowed to grow. We stretched from um, white males, 25 years or older, who are landowners who only could vote yep. to the 19th Amendment where women have the right to vote. Right? So now let's go back and unpack it underneath. Let's talk about the Colin Kaepernick thing. So now we go into President Abraham Lincoln is trying to preserve the union. Rights Emancipation Proclamation, which theory frees the slaves, right? So it, it says slavery is no, no more. However, there is a clause inside the 13th Amendment that says, unless you are picked up and put in jail, now it's gains back on. You can be a, you can be a slave again. They can treat you however they want to treat you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So guess who has to rebuild after the war happens? The South. Who doesn't have jobs in the South? African Americans. Yeah. Yep. Because now they are not going to work the, the plantation. So then if I'm loitering and don't know what really money is, I get picked up by the police, thrown back into a system so that I can be put on a chain gang yeah. to rebuild roads, bridges, and all the things that were, were – so that's where we get over-policing. So that begins to create a narrative. Now we go into World War II. Greatest fighting force, according to you all, and I'm talking to the, the Air Force now, Tuskegee Airmen. Oh, Tuskegee Airmen yeah. go, right? Oh. So now we, we have this whole thing. 
of uh, of these these amazing pilots that never that 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 supported the the the, the white pilots. Remember, they there was, some of them couldn't make rendezvous points, and they were cutting and running trying to chase glory with the German German planes and leaving the bomber escorts alone, which were which were increasing deaths in the bomber runs going uh, over into Berlin and back and wherever they were, they were doing the runs. So recorded history says the Tuskegee Airmen always met the rendezvous points. They never lost a bomber in a bombing run going to and from their their sorties, their missions, mm-hmm. yep. which meant that they were sacrificing themselves and their planes to protect the people that didn't want them up there in the first place. That's right. And then when they come home, when they come home and they save these individuals and they go back down south and those things, we have over three, four recorded instances where black Americans that served in that war in, in those units were lynched in their military uniforms down the south. Were they, were they being, were they being lynched because, uh, by the families of the people they protected and served with that didn't understand what they, what they had just done that you actually were there to bring them back up? So, and then we have their children who still serve in the military. So who's the greater patriot? Right. My God. So that's yeah. that's how we have to have these conversations. And so and it, and it goes all the way down to we're not talking about Colin Kaepernick protesting a flag. He's trying to expand a, a democracy. Yeah. If we really want to break it down, because he's not protesting something that was that was going out guns blazing. He's talking about. Uh, young black men that were in the backseat of a car with their handcuffs behind them and being shot. That's that's called execution. That's what he's protesting. Yeah. Not the other thing. Let's not let God get twisted and don't let's miss uh, miss words. I'm saying that on this sh- on this program as a, a framework, but in the audience, I'm really trying to get them to see it for themselves because I can't be the talking head. Just like in the bobsled situation, I want them to understand and discover that based upon the information that's out there for them outside of their bubbles and see how to poke holes in those bubbles so they can have a, a more thorough conversation and save lives from the people that they're going to be going into units and, yeah. and being over those yeah. units as, com- as commanders. That makes me think of, of sort of where we started with of, of the ripples versus echoes of, of really seeing that incident of, of, of seeing Colin Kaepernick as the echo of all these things that have that have happened in the past right of seeing him in context of all those things right and not this this ripple this you know disturbance in in what was happening right that it came out of nowhere and someone threw you know he threw a rock and now there's all these ripples he's creating something right. versus of seeing the actual all the the energy the stories the 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 crimes the the pain and everything that happened before that he's all echoing Versus, yeah. you know, that he's, you know, he's disrespectful versus, right? Putting it in context, that's, that's the most that's patriotic the thing that he can do, right? <laughs> right. That's the, that's the, that's the cop-out because we don't yeah. think deep like that, right? The cop-out is that he's being disrespectful. You don't want to have a real conversation about this. He's just ripped back and pulled the layer uh, on the scab back on, on America. Yeah. Right? And so we'll see the, the effect of what this, this one moment in time does later on down the road. We'll see the effects of... Of our pre- our presence, you know, we don't our presence don't get um, their glory in usually in the in the presidency. No, it usually comes after when you see the effects of what happened down yeah. the road uh, for eight, twelve years after their presidency, right? And then the next president that comes in, you'll see the effect of what they had. Based upon that, you can attribute it right back to the decisions that they made. Right. And so that's how we know that Lincoln was. Oh, he was that was amazing what he did. They weren't thinking that in the moment. 
no. Well, speaking of which, I think we would be remiss if we let you go without asking you about the Obamas, because we know you get to hang with them sometimes. <laughs> so. No, I don't get on. <laughs> I, mean, I was very, very honored. Because um, I really wasn't, I, I voted, but I wasn't really part of a huge political system. And I was on a board of directors. I'm on, still on board, the American Association for People with Disabilities. And one of the, the founders, the writers of the American with Disabilities Act, um, asked me to come to Washington, D.C. one day and said, hey, just bring a couple of ID cards with you. Uh, I got a meeting I want you to go into. Uh, I said, okay, you know, and I'm just green, not even thinking anything. And um, so we go in and he said, you got your ID card? I said, yeah. And so we walk across Pennsylvania Avenue to the, the Marine that's there uh, guarding the the entrance. And I'm like, I know we're not about going to the White House, right? I mean, you know, I go to the other side, the visitor's entrance. And yeah. Said, yeah, we had a meeting today. And it wasn't when the president was actually with Val- Valerie Garrett, the president's right right hand person. And mm-hmm. so we're talking about disability policy, and I'm just like starstruck, awestruck. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, like, you know, I'm in this, I can't believe I'm actually in the meeting. I'm the sports guy. I kind of have this complex going on. And after we walked out of the meeting, the, the gentleman said to me, Hey, just be open up to more opportunities. And I said, What in the heck did that mean? <laughs> and, um, <laughs> so now I'm on pins and I'm calling my wife, and I'm like, Wow, I was in the White House. I was meeting with Donald Trump. Oh, wow. So um, I get this call. As I went again, I'm walking across the street, phone rings, and it's a blocked number. And I never answered blocked numbers. I said, I, I remember Tony's words, just uh, be open to new opportunities. So I answered the call, said, Is this John Register? I said, Yes, it is. I got a question to ask you. It's going to be, it's going to sound weird, but I just need to know, do you uh, support President Barack Obama? And I said, uh, yes. And they said, okay, great. Uh, they said, well, we're going to, we'll call you back. And I said, uh-huh, okay. Then the, the phone hung up. About two months later, same thing. Block number comes in. Uh, I know it's weird. I know it's a weird call, Mr. Register, but do you still support the president? I said, yes, I do. I said, would you say that in public? Mm. And I said, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll sit in public. Okay, we'll call you back. And so come to find out, I was being vetted to be one of 35 co-chairs of the re-election of President Barack Obama for wow. the 2012 round. Mm-hmm. And it had to do everything with all this stuff that I've been, you know, kind of working on in the disability community and in the military veterans community and having these real conversations, these robust conversations around, let's not just look at the 140 character tweet uh, at that time, and let's really have some conversations around how we can change narratives and and, and get the entire community engaged in the in the overall process of the machine called America. Right? That's that was the, the vetting process. I never want to go into politics, and not not want to go into. But it was amazing to uh, to get a chance to just you know for just brief moments sit and just watch how this whole operation worked. And I was just amazed at how many people he had engaged in really smart individuals and would always be position himself like as the one that didn't have the information. I need information for everybody else to make decisions. Yeah. That's how we operated. And um, it was amazing to see that in practice and just to end the deep thought he had around issues and not just impacting himself, but how would it impact future generations, how would America be positioned? And it was a lot of deep thought around that. And to see that in action was just crazy. So if you look at my website, you'll see a picture of myself and, and, and 
mm-hmm. former president. Yeah. And I got, I got a little, I got something in my hand. Uh-huh. And what that is, a, a, it's, it's a bobblehead doll of him in a <laughs> skirt from, <laughs> from Hawaii. And I, you know, as, as he said, hey, John, we're going we're gonna to win Colorado. And I said, uh, Mr. President, I, we're going we're gonna to get you six points in Colorado. I said, we're not going to win El Paso County. But we're gonna, <laughs> we're gonna get and so he kind of struggled with that. I said, but I got an idea. So you you had this whole idea of getting up one vote, uh, $5 from everybody in the, in the country the first election time around. And I think if we sell these for five bucks uh, in, in Del Paso, and I pulled out that bobblehead dial and swiveled it in front of why yeah. the ships go, I said, I think we'll, I think we'll discombobulate them and we, we, we will get those, we'll get the full six for this. He just cracked up laughing, right? So, so then that's when they took the picture of us, you know, he's got uh, his hand, just his fingers on it and I've got my hand on it. So that was, that was our story. And then with uh, the first lady, the story is, um, I met her, I met her the most and just adore her. So I'm with Lisa Leslie, one of our great basketball players at American University. And first lady Michelle Obama is walking Samantha Cameron around to each one of the stations where we're doing this sports play day because she's just starting the let's move initiative. And she's got the gardens about to start this happening and everything. And so she's being walked around by uh, Dan O'Brien, there's a state dinner the next night for Samantha Cameron and David Cameron. We're invited to it, and I couldn't believe we were, I was actually going to a White House for a state dinner. Everybody at the station <laughs> uh, was at their, at their coaches' stations were invited two by two to go meet the First Lady and Samantha Cameron. So it got to be our turn, and of course, you know, Mrs. Obama's uh, brother is a basketball player and a coach. So she is going on and on about Lisa Leslie, I'm, I'm just standing there really politely. Um, and it's just, you know, kind of one of those awkward moments, you know, I want to just shake your hand. Thing. And, uh, but she's really <laughs> enthralled with, with Lisa, which is great. This is, I mean, Lisa's yeah. amazing. Um, and I'm enthralled too. So she was just out in Orlando, first lady was, with a friend of mine uh, named April, April Holmes. And so they had been hanging out. And so April kind of, I think, saw what was going on. And she comes over and she says, hey, first lady, how you doing? I said, hey, April, what's going on with you? She said, I'm doing great. Have you met my... um?" My mentor, John. And I said, oh, my gosh, I love you. I can kiss you right now. <laughs> and this is real. You can see it on her face. This is all authentic. It's all the time. So she, she recognizes, oh, I, I, I probably just didn't give it. So she, she brings me and gives us a hug. And said, oh, I'm so sorry, but, uh, but I'd love to hear more about what you're doing. I said, well, you know, personally, I kind of got a bone to pick with you. And then she's like, everything stood up. <laughs> uh, so I said, um, you got this shindig going on tomorrow night, you know, oh. at, your, at, at the people's house, you know, on, on six and a pen. And I, I really, and Mrs. Cameron, so lovely to meet you as, as well. Got this shindig going on. And, and, and we're guests, my wife and I, uh, we're so honored to be there. But my, my wife is trying to find the perfect dress to show up tomorrow when she, when she arrives and she believes that finding the perfect dress means she needs to buy every dress to try on at, at the house. So the card is maxed out. I don't know if I can actually get home and, oh, no. and, and it's, it's your own fault, you know? So she just cracks up. She says, I know she's, she's probably lovely, you know? And so we live at that. We get in line, the receiving line for pictures. I have my silver medal with me, and I take a picture with her with my silver medal. And, I, and she asked me, so how's the dress shopping going? And I said, I said, first lady, I'm not getting home. I'm going to have to wash your dishes tomorrow night because uh, <laughs> we, we can't afford the trip back home. 
<laughs> so, <but> she's laughing <laughs> more. And then we get the receiving line the next night. And so it's, it's uh, President Obama, David Cameron, First Lady Michelle Obama, and then Samantha Cameron. So Alice is right before me, and she goes in, and she is like Google-eyed with the president, of course. And she, she doesn't want to move. She, she is melted. She is totally gone. <laughs> and, uh, and, and she meets Cameron. Uh, and then she meets. And then so First Lady then looks at me. And I don't know if someone was in her ear or something and just said, hey, this is the guy from yesterday, you know, that you've been having this conversation. But um, she pulls Alice and says, girl, I heard all about the dress. And and, 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 she's, and Alice then cuts me this look like, what have you told? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm, I'm trying to hold it in. Because uh, I got to deal with it uh, after the, the event's over with, right? So I know <laughs> it's not going to come now. It's going to be the after effect. Yeah. And and so she tells us, oh, you look amazing. It's just the, the <laughs> most beautiful. She just just was just so mm-hmm. classy and, and authentic in the moment, right? Um, and had this banter, this interaction. And I know it's because mm-hmm. of how they grew up. That's them. It's not staged. It's their authentic self. And that's who, that's who they are. So I say that, you know. Yeah. There are people no. that are like that in the world that you just gravitate to them. And no matter where they go in life, they're accessible. I have to tell you, um, <laughs> I am married to a human who doesn't like other humans very much. <laughs> as much as he's an improviser and a wonderful person and he can put on a good act, there are very few people that he is drawn to and yeah, authentically yeah. likes. And we ran into you serendipitously right. on a train I think from New York to from oh. Albany once, and he still talks about how delightful you are. <sighs> and he was thrilled that you're doing this podcast and sends his regards. And you, John Register, as I'm sure all of our <laughs> at least half a dozen listeners at this point agree, um, oh, are one of kind. those truly authentic Absolutely. and magnificent humans. So thank you so much for being our guest. Oh, pleasure is mine. Thank you so much for having me Thank you so much for being with us today, Chad. It's been been a pleasure. So that was John Register. You can find links and info about him in the description of this podcast. I know, Kat, you were saying that he, you've been sort of conversing. This is a conversation that we had sort of a while ago. So you've been conversing with John in the meantime. Yeah, he was telling me that he's been working on his keynote speech and his version of some of the stories you heard here and already modifying them and shifting them and changing them and finding new insights and inspirations for himself. So bring him in, folks. Hear the latest version in just the last couple of months. Yeah, I think there's very much we are just on the shore of much larger conversations that we're going to be having. We could spend the entire this entire podcast and probably every episode of the podcast off into eternity talking just about that question right there. It's so deep and rich and I'm sure we didn't do it justice here in our conversation with John and uh, as if we could in any way do it justice, but it certainly left me thinking a lot about that idea of stereotype, even if in our head it's somehow positive or meant to be admiring How are we reducing people to one aspect of themselves or one characteristic? Or how are we projecting our own story 
or our, our own meaning onto someone else rather than really paying attention and receiving and listening for their story. Yeah. So that's one of the things I love about doing this with you is is creating space to get to hear people's stories and their sense of what it means for them to embody their own humanity and make sense of it for us. So I'm really thankful to John and to you and for our listeners and helping us to create space to do that. And we have spaces here for you to keep the conversation going. As always, you can reach out to us at 518-212-7886. Leave us a voicemail or send us an email at hello at daretobehumanpodcast.com or leave us a post or message us on Facebook at Dare to Be Human Podcast on there as well. Tell us your stories. Bye. Bye. (laughs) 